0: Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ron, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening?
1: Yeah, my name's Ron Jacobs. Um, I live in Vermont. Um, I'm in my late 60s. Uh, I, I'm an author I, and uh, been an activist, been an anti-war activist since uh, since I was a freshman in high school in 1969. Um, and uh, you see, I, it's, I never know exactly what to say in these things, um, but I'll tell you the books that I've written. I've written a book called um, Daydream Sunset, the 60s counterculture in the 1970s. I wrote another book, um, the first book on the weather underground that wasn't written by a weather underground participant uh, called The Way the Wind Blew, A History of the Weather Underground. I've written a three a trilogy of novels and then I've written, ai write for Counterpunch uh, online magazine. I used to write when it was a print magazine as well, too. I've been writing for them for over 20 years. Uh, and my focus is all over the place, music, culture politics i i review a lot of books that might not not otherwise uh be re, be reviewed and then a lot that are reviewed else in more mainstream uh forums uh i continue to do activist work such as it is in uh 2023 uh, i just recently retired from going punching in a clock a couple about a year and a half ago uh and uh during that, the last, the last three I've worked, I worked in libraries. Once I found a place I liked working, which was when I went back to college in my thirties um, in, in early in 1987, I I've, I've worked in libraries ever since then. And so my last job was a part time job at a library where I served as the uh, president of my union local, which in itself was an interesting experience being involved in on that level, that side of the union work. That's pretty much all I can think
0: can I, of. Yeah. Can I ask about um some of your activism? I mean, like was it was it largely like the Vietnam stuff and the kind of the stuff that was going on in the sixties and seventies? And then I also gotta ask you about the weather underground because I've I've learned a little bit about them. Um, but I've heard two varying different perspectives of the weather. Some people that thought they were horrible and they needed to be taken out and then uh, some people that said like, you know, they never hurt anybody. They warned people before they did anything dangerous that might affect people to try and scatter out of the area. But also I looked at Cointel Pro and I'm looking at like how much division was going on in, in multiple radical groups or what they deemed as radical by making them more radical and causing them to attack each other. And I go, look. I think history is the best, uh, I guess, predictor or not predictor, but it's the best revealer of the past. And if you look at like kind of what we know now, based on all these years of documentation, I think a lot of these movements that are necessarily written down in the history book as this certain thing that can kind of scare you away from it might have been brought that way and written that way because history books are written by the winners.
1: Right, right. Well, my activism did begin with Vietnam. Um, I think the first thing um, that really made me realize this country had something drastically wrong with it, was in 1968 when two things happened in 1960, I was 13. Um, There's a famous picture that happened in January 1968 during the Tet Offensive by the Vietnamese and the North Vietnamese, um, where there's a South Vietnamese um, colonel killing a suspected uh, NLF uh, member, Viet Cong, whatever you want to call him, on the street, killing him like shooting him in the head. And it was broadcast on TV. After that, my father said no more watching TV when, when the little kids are around. Um, I come from a big family. But uh, then the other thing that happened was the murder of uh, Martin Luther King and the uprisings that followed. Those are two things that kind of dashed any pause. And then to add to that was Robert F. Kennedy's murder in June of that year. And so on, 68 was a big year, but that was a year that flipped kind of me and made me realize that there was something drastically wrong. Then after that, my father went to Vietnam. Um, so I started being opposed to the war in Vietnam as a freshman in high school um, 1969. Uh, and I started off just flashing the peace sign. We had a moratorium at our high school. It was a Catholic high school. But a bunch of the nuns who worked at the Catholic high school were anti-war. They were pacifists. And so they helped organize. Uh, teaching that featured people both for the war and against the war. And then those of us who wanted to could go to a small anti-war protest, peace protest in the town that I lived in in between Washington and Baltimore. Uh, Then as as time got on, I became more militant. And like the thing that really kicked me into what I consider being anti-imperialist was when the US invaded Cambodia and then the murders at Kent State and Jackson State in 1970, which is my sophomore year. So anyhow, I continued being opposed to the Vietnam War. I got pretty involved in some, uh, like, left-wing Maoist organizations when I went to University of Maryland in the mid-'70s. And then stuff happened politically. Well, the war ended. The Vietnamese won. Uh, Nixon got kicked out. Uh, and I, I kind of drifted away from politics for a little while, moved out to California, and kind of got involved in counterculture stuff of more. And also kind of defending and working with, I was living in Berkeley and living, working with uh, what nowadays are called the homeless or the unhoused. Back then they were called street people and working a lot with them and advocating for them and defending people's park, which is where a lot of them hung out and interacted with each other in the community.
0: Why does street people sound better to me than homeless does?
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just has more of a I'm not sure truthfulness, but more of an identification too, because these are people who whose life is lived partially in in the streets and, and you so go on. Go to yeah, Hawaii,
0: yeah. and there's people that choose to be like homeless. Absolutely, but yeah,
1: yeah. That's just, yeah.
0: that would be more street people because they choose to want to live out on the street or something like that. It's like homeless just makes you sound like you can't get a home or you're just yeah yeah, yeah yeah less worth. And,
1: and and when I was there, it was like seventy. 76 through 82, 83, that's when that transition happened where fewer, you know, from people choosing there to the majority of them being people who were forced there. And that was because of the Reagan economics that came in in 1981 when a lot of all of a sudden unemployment jumped really high, people weren't able to afford rent, inflation got really crazy and all that kind of stuff because of the policies that Reagan put in or his administration put in. Then during the 80s, I was pretty involved in the um, movement against the, the U.S. wars in El Salvador, uh, Honduras, uh, the in Nicaragua, and so on. And we at towards the end of the 80s, I was living up in Olympia, Washington by then. I had gone back to school in the late 80s to college undergrad. And we started working, we started working on what ultimately became the uh the protests against the World Trade Organization and global capitalism. And we started there was a group that began called Fifty Years Is Enough. And it was about um some free trade, free trade, um, agreements that had been in, put put in place after world war ii that the united states forced on the rest of the world basically because the united states was supreme power after world war ii um and they were the i think they were called the general agreement on tariffs and trade and they were basically very supportive of u.s capitalism moving into all the world that wasn't socialist what it, uh, whatever you want to call it, socialist, communist, whatever you want to call um, the, you know, the Soviet Union and its allies. And then some of the, you know, some of the other and China, the People's Republic of China and their allies. Uh, And then. The invasion of Iraq happened, the first invasion of Iraq, and I got pretty back involved in that. And I was pretty involved in the the movement against the wars in the Middle East and uh, in favor of the liberation of Palestine or some kind of reasonable agreement in Palestine ever since then.
0: Can I ask like I mean through all these experiences did you start we'll probably end up drifting here right at this question into deep state talk but the the more of the capitalistic stru- structure of things like I really noticed this unhealthy relationship we have with capitalism and we have a people's mindset here the people do we care about what's happening to us and what we're experiencing but the government necessarily doesn't view it like that they kind of view a lot of things as business Or, you know, certain financial decisions and not really caring so much about like, oh, your personal beliefs, this is kind of like better overall, we think this is going to help us last longer in the future, and keep this superiority aspect of things. But I mean, diving through history and looking at Operation Mockingbird, looking at what happened at Kent University, um, a lot of people thinking that those cops or those people just in plain clothes were cops undercover agent provocateurs is a real thing so you kind of start looking at the powers of just the government and you really start asking yourself like what is going on i mean it can be blinded when you start talking about the government in such a critical or critical way people will get defensive like my grandpa used to get defensive like don't ever talk about the war around him cuz he served and he was very patriotic to his country i'm like but pointing out that there's a serious issue and critical stuff doesn't mean you're left or mean doesn't mean you're right. It's just really noticing when there's corruption happening. And we know through documentation that COINTELPRO is real, a fake Martin Luther King suicide note or what that's insane. And this idea of predicting that they're going to be bad, we're stopping it before it happens. I'm like, who get, who I don't know anybody that has a crystal ball that's able to do that type of uh research or work into that but that's what Cohen Cell base pro was basically looking at it through that lens
1: yeah and similarly or in a adjacent to that um if those groups weren't acting that way they put in their agents provocateurs or their informers to make sure that they begin to act that way i mean if you the to me the most obvious stuff is with the, what happened with the black panthers um the black panthers were a self-defense organization and then they begin or when they just you know and they were like a lot of groups in the 60s they knew how to use the media and back then the media played to them nowadays or actually i would say since like about the 1973 or so if not just grabbing a random year from the early 70s uh the media quit i think basically the media just quit they didn't as much give negative um feeling to the the anti anti corporate anti-capitalist anti-government groups as much as they just ignored them you know so and and at the same time what what we called the underground media which was basically kind of comparable to certain parts of the internet today you know where where there's alternative viewpoints and back then most of the alternative viewpoints were left libertarian um you know and then the the ultra right had their own their own alternative media too just kind of like today except the difference was the ultra right continues to exist and they become mainstream media if you look at groups like Newsmax, Fox News, some of these other other major news organizations that are funded by like corporations and individuals who with with an intention to put their agenda to make their agenda the only agenda. So so yeah, um I would say it was like around Kent State was when I really started started sharply trying to figure out well this is deeper than just a government policy. This is you know who's actually setting the who is the government kind of thing you know and then hanging out with different like ultra well very left organizations whose critique of capitalism obviously went beyond the government and that's the big thing so many people look at the government as being wrong and they get upset when the government tells them what to do but they don't look at who's actually you know i mean in my opinion right now the government is being is serves the corporations it's not It's not the opposite way, and that's like the economic definition of fascism. And you know, it doesn't matter who's run in the government. So, per se, it's the one thing
0: that keeps me out of the being on the left is because they always go, "Well, wait till we get our person in," and I'm like, I just think this is a lot bigger than the party systems. I think this is something that's like – I was for a while really trying to look at who is in charge of all this stuff and who is like the ones that we can point at saying this is when it all started going down. And I thought it was G. Edgar Hoover, but to be 100% honest, I'm very critical on that guy, but – don't i think it's bigger than him as well too this seems like an institutional thing like i mean hoover could definitely do a lot and he did do a lot but then you look at like what was going on through so many different agencies where this is like this is just like an a mindset that had been going where it's like here's your budget we want you to do anything in this general dartboard of an area and that's what these agencies had been doing for so long i mean the fbi's involvement into latin America. And so many other countries, not just here domestically and the Black Panthers, and they invaded a bunch of different groups. But the CIA is also uncontrollable arms on things where it was like the church committee really kind of shook a lot of things. And we don't open up the door for whistleblowers. We don't do anything. We don't. There's not really a whole lot of leniency for them to be able to try and speak out about unethical things that are going on, which makes me question, do we have an ethics board that's doing their job properly? We do. But small stuff, what about the giant scale stuff that we end up finding through documentation that could have really been better in hindsight?
1: Yeah, I, and I think that's, you know, I mean, I probably agree with you or like vice versa. That's intentional. There's a reason why, you know, they we focus on the small stuff. And while the big stuff that really determines what the directions that our economy and our politics goes is, is ignored. I mean, I, and I think part of it is, on an individual level people don't want to know that or people it's too it's too huge for most people to really even consider and then on on, on another level it's in, like i like i think we're both saying it's intentional on the side of the uh the powers that be that you know we don't see the forest because we're too busy looking at the trees to to use a and i think an appropriate metaphor
0: yeah, yeah it makes you question i mean it- the, like a psyops is that what's going on like we have things now where people say disinformation or misinformation or conspiracy in those words just take the value out of anything that a person could be speaking because the public that's how the public receives it to the point where they have no interest in caring about anything historical or really anything not saying you or me but no, no, sure sure absolutely yeah, yeah. and it, you know, when you look at that it's like is it like domestic terrorism we labeled a certain ethnicities in certain areas with that word. And now anytime someone sees them, they immediately think that as their first thought. And it's like, that's horrible. It's much like communism. That brush was painted over things that probably should never have been painted with communism. And it was such a drastic situation where we're experiencing it again. And it makes me think of a psyops.
1: Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. There's, um, I, I talk about it a little, very briefly in my book on, on the 70s. Um, And I talk about magazines like uh, and I talk about how like the underground press, how it transitioned from being pretty political, like an often left left anarchist, left libertarian political, you know, anti-government, anti-corporate, anti-war, just like let us create our own mutual aid communities, you know, that whole kind of grassroots kind of thing. Um, And. And then it when it went from there to magazines like Rolling Stone, which is basically it's a good music magazine. It used to talk about the non the apolitical aspects of the um of of the counterculture. Um and then, of course, it now it's just i don't I don't even know if it exists anymore because I think it's just another corporate magazine. But back then, it was intentionally apolitical. The furthest left it would go would be the Democrats and the furthest right it would go would be the Democrats. So it was purely within that frame when it talked about politics, you know. Mm-hmm. And there was a bigger difference back in those days between the, Demo- well, I don't know if there was a bigger difference. It's, it's hard to compare today's political parties to, the, to back then because they become much more um, ideological. But also then there was also um, National Lampoon, which was a, a satire magazine, uh, that basically made fun of everything equally. It made fun of Richard Nixon. It made fun of the left. It made fun of hippies. It made, you know, and, you know, and that's Saturday Night Live came out of that. Um, and so it was funny, but at the same time, it created this cynicism that that depoliticized a lot of people together with the whole Nixon thing that happened with uh, Watergate and and what came after that when the the first non-elected president Gerald Ford was appointed to replace Nixon when he re- resigned under pressure, so that he could keep his retirement and so on and get a plea bargain. But uh, so it is. I, I think kind of what what I'm what I'm trying to say is that the combination of the cynicism and then just the overwhelming nature of what we're up against makes it so that people prefer not to deal with it at all, you know. And so what ends up happening is you have you have weird things. You have, like, the ultra-right and the alt-right and the Trumpists and so on, which are interesting, where they all agree on some things, but Trump is sometimes, some of his stuff is more left because he's more popular in terms of like helping out working people, stuff like that. At least vocally he is and so on, you know. But so you have that weird combination over there. And then you have this idea that's propagated by the majority of the media in the United States, liberal, conservative, ultra-right, whatever. The only ones that don't do that are leftists and uh, anarchists and other people who are kind of outside the mainstream, uh, that the Democrats are the left are the left in the united states and uh, you know the democratic party is anything but left i mean you know it's 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 a right-wing party and to you know to pretend that it's anything but that i mean even bernie sanders is not a is not really what i would consider a leftist he's a populist and he's a good guy i mean i i like bernie i've interacted with him a lot because i live in vermont and he's when i was doing labor organizing he was very helpful on that um you know but he he, he stops at a certain place and dismisses everybody to the left of him, and his left is becoming more right, just like the country has become more right over the, over the last 50 years. Yeah.
0: We used to have a two-party thing. I think it's like four parties now. Um, there's like yeah. The super yeah, that's extreme, a problem. Yeah, I would
1: say that, yeah, yeah. There's yeah. The, a
0: super extreme right, which is like – I feel like that's just people that had maybe come across some things, and they can't – like those were the types of people where I, I'll hear a conspiracy. I'm like, yeah, what well, that part you're saying is accurate, but then you you add the extra salt on top. And I have to draw the line there. Like they say a good chunk that's right. And then they start going and then they're trying to make everyone like, you know, lose their mind. And it's all it's all a government. I'm like, hold on a second. Let's just let's back her up a little bit. What you said a minute ago was 100 percent accurate. Let's stay with that. And we don't have to go there. And then there's the right. And then there's what I thought left was Democratic. But then talking with a lot of older people who are Democratic, they have I wouldn't say more conservative mindsets, but they're conservative in some areas. Where I'm like, that's interesting that like you know like the whole I would think you would be guys on top of this because it's about like rights and all this type of stuff and then that was mostly because of things I noticed with the pandemic in certain situations. But then there's the extreme left, which is like uh, just like the right, but the opposite direction. Where it's like they're still extreme, but then they're overly and I'm like like I said, I try and stick to the history. Now I can't even entertain newer politics, but it's because it's so confusing. But it makes me look back and wonder how many people agree with the counterculture movement, how many people were about. You know, what was going on. And it seemed like everybody was on board with the anti Vietnam stuff, besides the people that were necessarily fighting over there. And I think even some of those veterans and some of those people who were in Vietnam, I've heard dissenting views where they even question, why the hell are we over here? Why are we wasting all this type of effort going into something like this? And it makes you think. Are we all divided on just basic, simple principles, or can we all come together on very simple stuff or very extreme stuff, which is the Vietnam War, which seemed like most people were against? And that's where I kind of trying to find that, like, where did it go wrong type mentality? Because I know everyone says we're so split in this country right now, and I think we are very split. But I also think we can connect on some very simple principles. We saw that with the pandemic. Everyone was concerned in the beginning, and now we all have dissenting views again. So we're not so far from base, where my whole thing is like, how do we get everyone on board to pay attention to that? You can elect a leader. That's not going to matter. What matters is the real institutional changes that we need to be talking about.
1: I'd like to um, talk about the counterculture and the Vietnam War, what you said there. it's interesting how, when people read nowadays, and this has been going on for like ten or fifteen years, that everybody was against the Vietnam War and everybody was a hippie. Um, you know, having grown up during that time and being a little bit younger than a lot of my contemporaries, you know, like the people who first got me high and stuff like that, um, it's our country was as divided back then as it as it is today, if not more so. It, it truly was. I mean, I just think of like. OK, say 1967, 68, 69, when the hippie thing moved out of like the the hippie ghettos in the cities of, and, and in university towns into suburbia and so on in the early, early 70s. I just think of like, you know, most people, most of my friends, parents were they hated hippies. They were afraid of hippies. They didn't want their kids to have to have long hair. You know, they were dotted dot like my father and I fought ridiculous battles over hair for you know, until I left home, basically. You know, my senior year, he finally backed off a little bit. That was 72, 73. But uh, so, and in terms of the Vietnam War, there was, more people were for that war until about 19, I would say 1968, 69, the tide started turning against it. Um, But at the end, part of that, because before, you know, I don't, I don't want to generalize because I really don't believe in the idea that generations, that it's a generational thing, you know, the boomer versus the millennials, all that kind of stuff. You know, there's a little bit of validity to that, but I think that's a media contrived thing. But anyhow, to think about like 1968, if you look at the campaigns, um, there's LBJ, who was president at the time, and he was identified completely with the war, uh, his administration. And then Eugene McCarthy, who is basically more of a libertarian than anything else, he he um, ran the first anti-war campaign as a Democrat, and in back in the New Hampshire primary, he almost he prevented um, LBJ from getting a. Uh, well, he presented. I'm trying to think. He presented a very strong opposition, and it's because a lot of people who are not counterculture and who are not hardcore leftists or anything but young people who are against the war organized along with people who are SDS and hardcore anti-war people to, um, to campaign for him and so the anti-war like get out of Vietnam now was still a, a radical demand but r- negotiations now with an idea of eventually getting out of Vietnam within a year or so was starting to become very popular because a lot of people in the in the media, like Walter Cronkite and some of the other big media talking heads at the time, um, were starting to question the validity of the war. They were starting to say, and Congress, the voices in Congress were, were growing in number of people who were opposed to the war. So it was still popular, but the, the anti-war voice was getting larger and larger. And then in 69, Nixon actually campaigned <clears throat> on a uh, on a slogan that he had a secret plan to end the war. And he didn't tell anybody what the secret plan was. Of course, as it turns out, documents have shown us that in the last few years that his secret plan was to nuke, the, nuke North, to threaten North Vietnam with nuclear devastation. And he ended up pulling back on that because of the huge massive anti-war protests in nineteen sixty nine the moratorium and of November October fifteenth and the November fifteenth um, moratorium, which were joined by middle America for the first time. There you know, there was millions of people in the streets across the country, and a lot of the people were uh, um families. They were working, you know, they were, High school teachers—they were young people. They were the nuns in my, in my school that I just talked about, and so on. Uh, and then the other part of it, you know, and so that slowly, by the time Nixon ran in '72, he still, he, he was able to win in a landslide because they were able to paint George McGovern, who was a Democratic candidate, uh, as a co- as a socialist and a hippie, and like what was their campaign? Amnesty, abortion. An acid that's what they said that if you know kind of like the same thing the right does about some of the democratic camp um candidates now saying they're gonna turn the you know they're gonna make the whole country communist and all this kind of stuff when in reality he was just a liberal just like bernie sanders is just a liberal he's not gonna you know they're not gonna create a communist country because the united states will probably never be even a socialist country it's just against its Nature. I mean, it's a capitalist country, and it, it was created as a capitalist country, and it probably always will be one. You know, but uh, so. But by you know, by the time the peace treaty was signed in 1973, um, a peace treaty that didn't end the war, but removed a lot of the U.S. presence in in the country out of there. Um, most of the people, I think, were against against the war. I mean, my father, he went to Vietnam. I told you, 68 through 19 early 1970 and he said when he went there he knew the war was a lost cause and if there had been a way he told me this later in life you know and if there had been a way for him not to go without losing his career he would have done it but you know you're in the military you go where they tell you to go otherwise you risk losing everything and in terms of the counterculture people hated the hippies they were afraid of the hippies uh and it was very popular among the young i mean the, the merchandise and Woodstock made that even bigger and bigger because Mer- Woodstock was a huge rock festival, but it was also incredible marketing by Warner brothers uh, who basically every single artist who was at Woodstock was on the Warner brothers label.
0: Damn, and also, ah, that's crazy.
1: Yeah. Isn't that wild? But it was smart the way they did it. You know, they, they had young people in, in their public, in their marketing department. So they knew how to, you know, they were smart. And that's one thing about, capitalism especially the side that deals with entertainment it is so mutable it's it's so able to take the parts that they can sell and and turn it into this incredibly marketable thing i mean uh you look at any corporate culture punk became that way grunge became that way Mm -hmm. anything that you see labeled is like that hip-hop became that way it's pretty amazing you know but it's it's one thing about capitalism that it's really good at doing so that side of capitalism is pretty impressive in that way Did I ask about the
0: counterculture in the beginning? You said that everybody wasn't for – like it wasn't anti-Vietnam. Is that because of the way that the communist threat was kind of amplified through the media, or was it just like not everybody was on board with what the hippies were saying? Because you got to understand, I wasn't around at the time, so I'm looking through either what a history book can tell me, and most of the people I've talked to who either study the counterculture or study that type of stuff, they're very – I would say, say swing left. Um, but they're all very um like everybody we we were fighting in the streets, this type mentality. and i I, I understand that, but I'm also like it, what you're saying makes a lot more sense, which is like everyone eventually started to become, I guess, on board with it. Um, but I would have to think that like the whole reason we didn't back out of Vietnam, just a thought. I'm sure there's many reasons that we you know stayed in there, many reasons to go to war, I guess, but um, that's what they say. but I would think that if you backed out of the war, especially to Vietnam and show that you failed, what does that do to morale? What does that do to the people back home who view your government as strong? And you look at it from like a capitalist thing. And also I believe what like even Doug, I think it's Doug Valentine, where he talks about with the heroin stuff that's in there. Two longest wars we've ever had. And I have talked to many people who said we were guarding poppy fields and not knowing why we're guarding poppy fields. So like I said, there's many reasons there, but also if you look from like the capitalist standpoint, it's a good business decision to stay there and get money from that drug shore. Um, but also you look from like a powerful standpoint. And it's like, if we back out of here, we're going to look like wimps to every other major country, which is a crappy way. If you talk about human lives being expended um, to be fighting in a pointless war. I, I think all of those were reasons. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of try to think, you know, my father
1: would always say, and you would always hear the politicians say, and other, other of his friends, military men and so on. And they would always say, well we've got to save face, you can't, you just, we promised these people that we would defend them. And the, what they always missed in that conversation was that the government they were defending was a government created by the United States to prevent the Vietnamese people from taking the whole country, because ultimately in 1954, after the Vietnamese defeated the French um, and Chase got them out of there, uh, there was supposed to be an election According to the accords that they 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 reached, and there's supposed to be an election, but the United States rejected the idea of the election because they knew that Ho Chi Minh and his party was going to win, and then Vietnam would have been reunified as one country. So what basically they used the Korean model where they found a certain parallel, you know, you know, like the latitude, um and everything below that was going to be under quote under, us control and everything north of it would be independent or be their own country and korea ended up as a truce uh, ultimately what happened in vietnam was uh they set up you know if, if you ever read the history from like 54 to probably about six till after dm it was they were searching for what they call the u.s was searching for and this is a cia concept for what they call a third way which wasn't, wasn't communist, it also wasn't fascist, but it was a uh, I mean, it wasn't communist, but it wasn't out and out colonialist. But it was like a third way, which uh, who's that guy? Certain certain leftists called neocolonialism, where there's you know, where there's people in the country who actually are ruling the country, but basically their economy is beholden to the United States and other Western powers. And immediately after, for the first 30 years after the war, it was the US more than anything else who, you know, I mean, the Marshall Plan was kind of set up for, for the same reason in Europe and so on. Um, but to, thinking about the counterculture, it's like, if you think about like, I mean, let's take marijuana. Marijuana was, marijuana and LSD were two of the drugs that and that were, for white people, were com- connected and completely identified with with the counterculture. Uh, People went to jail for a really, 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 really long time when they got busted for marijuana. And it wasn't just in Texas that happened, that happened all over the United States. Um, I think of a good buddy of mine, he died a long time ago, but he got busted for marijuana in Albany, New York in 1968. And uh, the judge gave him the choice of going to prison for five years in Attica or joining the Marines. And so as he told the story, when I met him, like in the 70s, he said, well, he said, I kind of rolled the dice and figured I'd have a better chance of surviving in the jungles of Vietnam than in Attica, you know. And so he went over there and uh, he got addicted to heroin and the whole that whole side of the vet story, you know. Um, But he came back to the States and he, you know, he just went back to being the hippie person that he was. He worked for Bill Graham for a while. He did, you know working at rock concerts and stuff like that. And then he got into smuggling marijuana, you know, and that's kind of like what he did. But so, and that, it was the drugs that really scared people and the psychedelic music and so on. And so people were, and the long hair, I mean, there was was all these hair restrictions, kind of like, you know, where, you know, like in the junior high I went to, if you had hair, over your if you were a guy you had hair over your ears over your collar they suspended you for a couple days uh you weren't allowed to wear certain kinds of clothes and so there was a big fear of it and then sometime in the 70s it became mainstream and drugs kind of moved out of just being something that
0: Ooh, i wonder if that's john lennon like john lennon and that kind of like uh vibe that was coming over. um, I know he eventually he had mop top and all that, but eventually he had his hair down long and everything like that. but and he's another name that pops up with that counterculture movement where I wonder if that kind of like once the musicians started kind of switching their style a little bit, did you start seeing more popularity in it?
1: It popularized among the young people, definitely because music was kind of like like I say in that book it's it was kind of like the talking drum and music back then, I mean, if you even think of some of the popular songs like um one, two, three, four, what are we fighting for? I don't you know I don't. I don't give a damn. Next stop is Vietnam, the country Joe and the Fish stuff. And there is a you know war. What is it good for? Which was actually by an African American artist, but was like one of the most popular songs of 1970, and so on. Um, yeah, that definitely po- popularized the counterculture. And it's always kind of interesting, you, you know, like if you look at if you read some of the old British the, um, underground newspapers that were published in London, and so on, and they have interviews with John Lennon or so some some of those folks. And they one of the things they they talk about um and that commentators commentated about i guess is um did the beatles and bands like that did they reflect the counterculture when they let their hair grow long or did they help did they help create the counterculture and i think what you said is more accurate is that there was always the fringe that came out of the beatnik the beats and then became the people like ken kesey and some of the original Bohemians, hippies, whatever you know, because there's always been a bohemian culture in throughout the world, you know, and in the West, it, it's a long history. Walt Whitman back in the eighteen hundreds and so on, it all the way through the flappers and the Surrealist over in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the 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 fact that popular music became well, that the counterculture became so identified with popular music and vice versa. Um, really helped to popularize the counterculture among young people. And it brought it from out of the universities into the working class culture. And that's something that a lot of the left groups in the late 60s, the Weather Underground, the Revolutionary Youth Movement, all these other kind of groups that came out. I mean, there's a few exceptions to this rule, but most of them were trying to figure out how to organize young people, um, young working class people, young people not in the universities, even though back then, Universities were there was a lot of people in the universities because they were cheap, and there was a lot of GIs coming back from the military, that now the military who could go to school for free. I mean, and get paid to go to school and so on. And for example, schools were so cheap back then. This is something that people forget. I went to University of Maryland in 74, 75, and it cost me 500 dollars for the whole year. You know, and I went to I went to Fordham 72, 73. Which now is seventy-five thousand dollars a year. I had a scholarship. I paid three hundred dollars for my entire year, um, and the rest of it was paid be through Pell grants and a scholarship and so on. But the total cost would have only been thirty-seven hundred dollars anyhow. So that's a whole thing that people and sure the dollar wasn't had more value than you could get more for the dollar and so on. But educate higher education just like a uh, medicine has always transcended other inflationary rates by you know exponentially and so on so it's just something to say about why the universities there was a lot of people going to school even if they weren't going to class so that made a big difference that's why they were such hotbeds of radicalism and so on because there was a lot of people coming out of out of different experiences and getting together and being pissed off about stuff
0: what what do you think was the fall, of, like, in your mind of what the counterculture kind of failed with? Um, I think it did a lot, and I think it was very, very successful. But, I like, learning about the gay blades and a bunch of things that just started turning in on themselves a little bit or just didn't last out so long. And then, like, you got to look at, like, the government creating the Rational Observer, which is a fake magazine – and they did plenty of stuff. Like they, I think there was more communist infiltrators of the government that were in actual Fair Play for Cuba committees and Fair Play for Vietnam uh, papers than there was actual communists in there. Yeah, yeah, which, in the actual party, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They,
1: they say that by the '60s, the the actual the, the official Communist Party of the United States of America probably had more, you know, more as many informers paid agents as there were as there were actual members and so on. i would say that what kind of the failures of the counterculture were was that it allowed it never pointedly when it got popularized in the late 60s into the early part of the 70s it never addressed the racism that beca- that became became greater in it you know and there's you know um, i would say that's part of it I would say another part of it is the fact that it, through a combination of factors, and who knows, I mean, it's really too early to know for sure, or if you can ever know what caused history to happen for sure anyhow, um, was when the politics started leaving, which is basically when the draft, when they stopped sending uh, draftees to Vietnam, which was around 72, uh, and then when the draft ended in '73, um, at the end of '73, when when the draft ended, a lot of people who were against the war, but who came out of um, you know middle class and upper middle class environments, um, they stopped being political because they know they didn't need to be political, so they could just enjoy the sex and the drug, the sex. Because I I would say in the '60s, late '60s, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll, and revolution, and then between people losing interest in the revolution side because they didn't it there was less self-interest in it you know and and also because of the repression by the government CoIntelPro, Pro etc etc um but then also um by the fact that magazines like uh, rolling stone um and other and they were the the, the capitalist entertainment complex was able to um separate the politics out and they found you can sell sex drugs and rock and roll hell it's still being sold i mean you know (laughs) Uh, so so it's something that you can sell you can't sell revolution because that's counter not really revolution because for one thing the revolutionaries won't let you do it but for the other thing once you start trying to sell revolution it just becomes another brand you know like the circle a for the anarchists on the t-shirts made by you know some corporation someplace and sold it and sold it late at your mall, you know? So that's, those are some, you know, it's, it's, those are as as probably as specific as I could get because it's really difficult to tell what it is. And there's, you know, I think the punk thing that happened like mid seven began like in the mid to late seventies in places like the UK, New York, uh, San Francisco, DC, and a bit in Chicago, and then up in Vancouver, BC, and in the Seattle area. That was kind of a reaction to the corporatis- corporatization of rock, the ending of the politics of rock, and the whole rock star, rich guy kind of thing that was best represented by bands like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones and a couple other groups like that, you know, so...
0: My, my parents are like work radio, and you know, so this isn't that far from similar to what they do, except uh, they're on an actual, you know, station and all that. But my dad's like a. I known him as for being a Kiss tribute guy. Like he was always in a Kiss tribute band dressed up as Peter Chris. He's actually met real Kiss. He's in a commercial with them that you could find on the internet. So learning more about the history of rock and roll, when I always thought when someone mentioned anarchy and it was like going against the government, I was like, I think it's just fighting capitalism. Like that's where I really only first heard the words fascist or pig ever be thrown out to me, my experience. That's the only time looking through that punk movement. Like it's not like you're anti you know, government—it's—it's it's anti-establishment, sure, but it's more about like capitalism, and it makes a lot of sense of what you're saying when it comes to like uh, the, just the whole profitization that they started finding a way to mine the vein of rock and roll, where that's where people were having a problem with. It was like, yeah, it was like it loses the essence of what it originally stood for the
1: whole, yeah, the whole yeah. anti thing that rock and roll kind of is supposed to represent, always has represented, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting how it, it came out, like in the in the UK. You know, the first big band was the Sex Pistols, you know, and they were like, God, you know, God, you know, Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen and her fascist regime, all that kind of stuff, you know. And then you had some other bands that went more over, ended up over in the, I don't even know what they call it, bands like New Order and stuff like that. And then you had the Clash who were basically two guys in the band were Marxists and the other two just wanted to be rockers. And they, they were, you know, and they were actually like really competent musicians and they got better, you know, with their reggae and all that kind of stuff. And they actually had kind of like a program when they joined up with some of the other bands for rock against racism, you know, some of those bands, like, and then some of the reggae bands and so on. And then it's interesting, but they were revealing the, like, I think always thought of Johnny, um, John Leiden and uh, Johnny Rotten was what he called himself back then and yeah, Sid and all those people I and a lot of that punk movement they were rebelling against like the extravagance of the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and their corporate jets and all that kind of crap you know and then in the states uh, it's hard I was living out west back then so I don't really know what the the New York um punk scene was i i my family was still in dc so i would go back there and like you know catch stuff like bad brains and fugazi and stuff and bad and and like fugazi was pretty political and so on you know um and they were definitely against corporate rock and they were against a lot of that kind of stuff um and then out west the punks were mostly against because especially in the bay area they were against all the hippies the hippie you know and I understand in their way because by then bands like the Grateful Dead and so on, you know, they weren't making tons of money yet because they were still th- because one thing they weren't really good at making money, but another reason was because they were still kind of anti-corporate so they were still trying to run that little
0: their own I think even the Grateful door. Dead allowed you to record their stuff as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, like, that
1: was yeah. one of their things always they still do and stuff, you know. And mm-hmm. they never lived too extravagantly. They lived like better than most street street hippies and stuff like that, you know, but they were still pretty down to earth until like late eighties when they, they decided to go, go for the gold too. Um, but the, the identification that, that deadheads have and that they still have is, um, just being lazy hippies or, or frat boys who just want to get high and don't want to do any politics. And there's, there's a, you know, that's true about, presentation and it's not true i mean most of the deadheads i knew were pretty political but i also hung out with the with certain people you know i didn't i didn't hang out with the rich ones because i i wasn't wealthy or anything so they they were rebelling more against the the hippie thing um i mean if you ever read uh interviews with jello biafra you know um, from the dead kennedys and He grew up in Boulder. His parents were hippies and Boulder is like the ultimate hippie town. It was back then in the seventies. And so that's why he decided to go out to California and start a punk band because he said he thought it was all bullshit. And, you know, part of it, you rebelled against your parents. That makes sense. You know, I mean, my son didn't listen to Grateful Dead music till he was in his thirties. You know, I mean, he was into punk and death metal and hip hop, you know, he, he, he grew up in the nineties. So that makes sense there and stuff, you know? So, uh, but yeah a lot of it's just like like what you said they were going against the corporatization of it and the whole manipulation of it but then punk ended up you know like like once again capitalism is so good at taking these movements and making money off them
0: I think a lot of these different genres and different styles of music that people listen to, I think it splits people in the small communities um, a little bit differently, but I also think that creates, I wouldn't say it creates more of a divide, but it definitely, the divide is kind of present. Like some people embody the music that they listen to. Like I like reggae music. I actually like all types of music. I don't really haven't come across a lot of things that aren't, you know, bad or anything. I mean, I grew up listening to kiss and Metallica and, you know, all this other type of stuff, but then I've listened to plenty of good songs and plenty of other stuff, but I have friends that will not branch out of their categories. People that love The Grateful Dead, honestly, I've only listened to one song. I don't really like their music that much, but I love their art. I think it's amazing some of the stuff that they create design-wise, but I think it splits people. And if the bands start to get political, does that mean people start developing different political views, like fuck the government and that type of mentality that causes maybe – I wouldn't say a divide, but causes more of a disconnect – Where we start kind of losing the essence of what was the original thing, which was anti this feeling that we are all receiving from this being lost forever. I mean, music makes people feel a certain way depending on whatever you listen to. And then you get like names that are, I guess, I mean, solidified in history and cultural icons like Bob Marley, for instance, changed a lot of music styles and changed a lot of people's minds. But everyone's heard the name Bob Marley. But yet, I mean, is his his fame because he died too early? There's a lot of questions that really get brought up. I think he was a great musician, but also the people that wear Bob Marley on a T-shirt might only know one song by the man and then drift off. So you start seeing where the capitalism starts coming in, and then I feel like we're at this disconnect of loss, like the essence of music. We still have it. People are still creating it but also the people that I've been able to learn from experiences. Green Day. I mean, American Idiot, everyone's singing that song without even really yeah. knowing what knowing what it is. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And this is interesting. This addresses, these are other examples of kind of what you just said with Green Day. And it's kind of like how people like music, but do they really listen to it? And then the, the politics and rock and all this kind of stuff. Okay, take two, two, two bands that come to mind is like Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and Rage Against the Machine. Okay, Bruce Springsteen has always been like he he began pretty much on the left. I mean, he was he was like popular working class left guy and stuff like that. And, you know, he didn't become super superstar Bruce until the 80s with the Born in the USA record, which came out. And that record, which is basically a record talking about how fucked up things were, you know, like under Reagan, under Reaganism, how the vets were being mistreated, how people being kicked out on the street. That whole album is like about it's one of the most if you listen to the lyrics on it, um it's what mo- most of the songs are about people losing their jobs and ending up in really bad places because of what's happening in the corporate world because of the intentional redistribution towards the top that began under Reaganism, under the neoliberal concept and so on, you know. Uh but I can think of so many times after that song came out like in the first invasion of Iraq and the second invasion of Iraq when People, when I would be at a rally, usually on a college campus, because I was working on and off on college campuses in there, when there would be an anti-war rally, and for the lack of a better description, frat boys would come up and start blaring that song and waving their American flags and shouting USA, you know, pro-war stuff, and not getting the fact that that song was not about, was about what happens when we go to war for imperial reasons and stuff like that you know people get destroyed on all sides of the battleground and so on you know and then you know of of course bruce has become more corporate and now bruce is just another dumb democratic party hack as far as i'm concerned you know you know and whatever you know um then you take rage against the machine which is an overtly left-wing group you know pistol
0: grip pump dude pistol grip pump
1: yeah yeah and but people listen to them, and they're like, "When did they get political?"
0: I'm like, "Dude, <laughs> when they put a monk on the cover of their album, and it was on fire." It was on
1: fire, yeah. And when the next one says, "Support our troops," and it's the Zapatistas, you know, I'm like, "You know, what did you miss?" You know, it's kind of like, you know, I mean, I rage has got it, you know. And what's his name? Um, Tom, yeah, Tom Morello, and 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 Zach, both, you know, they their parents were like left hardcore lefty revolutionaries back in the sixties and stuff like that, you know, and they did a lot to get people, you know, they got my son into politics for, you know, around the Mumia stuff because they, they supported Mumia's, you know, trying to get Mumia a new trial and all that stuff for, for years. And they still do, you know,
0: I don't know when a single song plays at the bar and then you hear, fuck you. I won't do what you tell me that every single person in that bar starts saying the exact, and that's
1: the attitude you're talking about. The original rock and roll attitude is the fuck you. I do what I want. Just like, uh, DC boys, I'm gonna fight for my right to party. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, stuff like that, you know. And that's the attitude that gets and and some of Bob Marley's stuff is like revolution stuff, you know, and it's like but that's the stuff that either gets pushed aside or gets manipulated into becoming the opposite of what it is, which is the irony and the 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 irony and the mad not magic, but proves the ability of capitalism to do what it does
0: i wouldn't get conspiratorial with this and this might be a conspiratorial thought but i feel like it's there's such a dramatic change where the music ends up changing into something not like the style but uh, just take a band for instance and it's that selling to capitalism, whether someone comes by with a giant check and says, I'm going to make you billions and make you famous. And then you, you're inner it's a devil's bargain. That's what yes, it is. It's it totally basically is. like, yep. do you want the fame? Do you want everything that you could possibly desire anytime you want it? Well, then you're going to do it like this and we're going to help you get there. And it's like, playing the system i mean it sucks because and then there's the people bring up well i have integrity i just won't do that i was like no you wouldn't when that devil comes to your door and he knocks and he offers you anything that you possibly dreamed of when you were a kid before the band was even out of the garage
1: because you always wanted to yeah absolutely yeah it, yeah you know and that's an interesting thing i mean you take two bands i don't know if you know like uh not fugazi you know the band crass they yeah. were like a yeah okay they're like a hardcore band from uh britain you know okay Crass always rejected any commercial, um, at le- you know, at least as long as I have known of them, signing on to a big label. Rage Against the Machine signed on to a big label. Jefferson Airplane signed on to a big label, and they would sing these revolutionary anthems. So it's always kind of like that devil's bargain. And so, what what does that do to the music? Is it is, for example, with Rage? Um, being able to get their message out to millions and millions and millions of people, does it? Is that better than staying pure to your vision and your anti-capitalist? I'm not going to ever, ever deal with the big guys and stuff like that. Um, it, it's one of those. It's one of those six and one half dozen of the other arguments, and I'm sure any musician who's got political opinions, no matter what they are, who wants to hold true to some some kind of values, has to wrestle with that. You know, and then and then they, you know, uh, the clash split up because of that, you know, because uh, what's his name? The drummer, Mick Jones, was he the drummer? Anyhow, Joe Strummer wanted to stay political and two of the other guys wanted to go and become big rock stars bigger than they already were. And so the band band split up, you know, so it's a it's 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 one of those things that capitalism does really well.
0: You look at like the change in John Lennon as well, too. I mean, when he started going off onto more of his own thing, he starts being very more political on certain statements on things he's being very activist and kind of going off into his own and now he's just synonymous whenever you mention the beatles everyone immediately thinks john lennon or just if you just look at John Lennon I mean people put his profile his picture as their profile picture on like Facebook I have a couple of friends that have something yeah, like yeah, that same so here. it's like yeah yeah you know yeah. and it's it's interesting to me because like when I saw the Rage Against the Machine cover album I was like holy shit I asked I asked my buddy I was like you like the band so much do you look at the album and see what that is and he goes what and he looks at it and he goes is that real and I was like yeah that's a but you don't notice they don't know they just hear the catchy lyrics on things which is interesting to me because I mean There's one song out there that probably my generation doesn't know, and they are probably now going to start learning it. And it's one of the most powerful songs. I listen to it sometimes in the morning because it has so much impact to it. Real heart and soul. It'll make you cry. A change is going to come by Sam Cooke. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That
0: song represented something very powerful and was trying to basically help out with a movement and really trying to get some real change going in there. And you could hear it in the lyrics of the song. And it's just. T-Pain just did a cover of it, a rapper. Oh, cool. That's cool. So, uh-huh. Yeah, very cool to keep it culturally alive is why it's important, but it's with auto-tune and it's with a lot of stuff where he did a good job doing it, but you don't get the same... Um, yeah, that, emotion. that that
1: emotion that's there is, is is something. Yeah. You know, another person that you, you said change is going to come um, is Bob Dylan, you know? And Bob Dylan's Bob Dylan. He's like this, you know, the poet laureate of rock and roll or whatever he had a you want to call Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he which they and yeah and he, i mean he started off very political and then he moved into a different kind of what i call uh transcendent politics where he was which became more of a like a, um i'm gonna live my own life you know and i'm not gonna buy your bullshit etc cetera, etc cetera. And, and then he's become a million different people because that's who bob dylan is you've been around long enough you know you know he 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 calls him you know there's a he's a character in um the movie he did uh pat garrett and billy the kid the name of his character is alias because he's always changing his persona you know so um and then he did the song hurricane which is about the boxer hurricane carter who was falsely imprisoned and i don't know if you know that song but it's one of the most powerful rock songs political rock songs there is and it's basically done with an acoustic guitar a violin and then the rest of the rest of the band it's quite amazing um you take someone like him who I, there was, I, when, in 1974, when I was going to University of Maryland, there was a, um, I was part of this group called the Revolutionary Student Brigade, which was an anti-imperialist leftist organization that was connected to the Revolutionary Union, which was a group that ultimately became the Revolutionary Communist Party, which is a completely different group than the group that calls itself the Revolutionary Communist Party now. But anyhow, that's a whole history, you know, like fringe history kind of thing. But, uh this band came to the, they had a musical group that was, were members of their organization. They called themselves Prairie Fire from the slogan, a single spark ignites a Prairie Fire, um, which is something from that Mao Tse-Tung wrote in one of his speeches or something. But, uh, and they, back then they were a folk rock acoustic duo. They all, as the seventies wore on, they became a, they added a couple more members and became a punk band. Um, They, but, uh, After they came to the University of Maryland and performed and then afterwards they had a uh, open discussion and they were talking and one of the things that came up was is Bob Dylan revolution is he a radical and stuff like that. And it was very interesting because back then he meant a whole lot to a lot of people Um, and he had his music was kind of like what got me thinking about things in a different way his you know once I start you know after I bought his first record in 68 I went back and bought his earlier stuff and heard all these songs I mean everybody knew blowing in the wind by then but I didn't know times they are changing and a bunch of these other politically oriented songs that he did you know um about racism about war masters of War all that kind of stuff you know um but anyhow they came up with the idea that music stands separate from the artist which kind of you know because music, once you record a song, it's out there and it exists as it is, even if people change it. Like you're saying, T-Chang, is that his name? T-Chang? T-Pain. Pain? Pain. T-Pain. T-Pain. Um, as he changed his presentation of the song, but it's still the same song, you know. And the only reason that it reminded me of that is because a change is going to come. They, um, Sam Cooke one time said uh, that he was inspired by Bob Dylan to write that song you know, because before that he had written a lot of pop songs and he was a gospel singer originally. I mean, and his, if you ever go back and pick up, listen to some of his gospel music, you know, whether you care about the content or not, it's some, you know, it's some incredible vocal music. I mean, the emotions are so, so raw, if you know what I mean. Do
0: you think that you can learn another side of history through the lens of music? I know you can, you learn it from historical documents and things of that sort, but it's also like, I started learning that you can learn like two sides of the Industrial Revolution, you can learn the history of it. And then if you talk to someone who's like, uh, someone who studies the economy or just economics, I'm going to blank on what that name is. I definitely did not say it right. didn't come out right. But um, economist who studies the Industrial Revolution from it's just a different thing it's like you can learn it from this way as well too and they're like yeah here's the industrial revolution through this lens and i think with music you can possibly do the same thing if you look at what was going on around the time And it's a great predictor of just what the culture was like and what people were listening to and getting engaged with because music does spark up something but also the varying perspectives and i think it's the best example of capitalism too i mean if you listen to like and a lot of my favorite music is a lot of soul music as well too funk music but i also like stuff from like frank sinatra days i like the ink spots i like all this type of stuff um some of that stuff is you probably land in more of the category of commercialization. Um, funky beats, you know, these types of things, you know, getting you can look at any broadcast of it. It's all televised and everything like that. But then there's an essence to, I mean, does the artist Does that affect the artists? Does that mean that they're not about what they were in the beginning? And I was like, I don't know, because if you look at like most funk singers were African American, they never got any limelight. So it's like, damn right. Get on stage, man. Go on there and, you know, sing it away. I'm not going to yell at you for being capitalist in that aspect of things. But then again, do those songs, do I soak in the meaning of it? Well, they're catchy and I like them. Well, could that be studio? A hundred percent. I Johnny Cash, I'm a big fan of him. Ring of Fire is a great song. All these are really good toe tappers. But am I soaking in the lyrics? When I hear Won't Back Down, I fucking feel that. When I hear other songs that he has produced, I kind of go, I don't feel that. People go, well, then I guess you just haven't experienced the hurt. I'm like, I don't think it's that. I just think it was kind of commercialized a bit and might have entered an area where it's not the original of how you start out. I mean, everything changes. Everyone changes through this evolution into the world of capitalism, but also it's the system. It's much like if doing a podcast is much like any of this type of stuff. The audience can grow. Yes. But then when you enter a place where it catches the right eyes, people are going to start flashing things. And if you look at what people internally always think about either making a mark, fame, women, Whatever you want to say, the whole list goes on. It's why bands usually split up once they start getting popular is because everyone has individual um, things of what they want to achieve. I want to do it for the music. I want to do it for the money. I want to do it for the women. So you enter this land where like, yeah, this – if you look at music history or just history through a music lens and analyze it today, you get a different side. And you get the more of the pointing the fingers on capitalism and what the destruction of capitalism does because that's what mostly it affects. Same thing with the movie industry. The movie industry is the exact same. And you can we can talk about the history of Hollywood is just fucked to begin with. But you really point out and you go, that's the best example. We can look through all the war stuff and be like, yeah, capitalism, capitalism. But to me, music and film talking about this, I'm starting to see there's a bigger finger you can point at capitalism in that aspect of things to really show people that's what we mean by like an institutional change, a real problem there.
1: Yeah, it's a. I think it was marx who said it or something but he was like saying you know that capitalism is a revolutionary phenomenon because it can create these changes and you know the ultimate thing that it did was it created it changed the nature of work by taking away the you know you know prior to capitalism people people might have worked for someone else but it was it was it's it's a it's a difficult I'm trying to think of a good example, but it did change the nature of work where the only the only thing you know by revolutionizing production and all that kind of stuff where not just one person created or one shop created an entire product um from beginning to end now it's you know, in today's world, part of it's made over in China, part of it's made in Vietnam, part of it's made in Mexico, then it's shipped to the US and assembled in the US. And each and each worker involved in that only has one little task to do and so on, you know. And he said, So it's revolutionary in that nature, but at the same time, it's counter-revolutionary and that it's so dominant that it stifles certain creativity you know and i think in, if you look at it in the music and the, and the entertainment world music and, and film i mean i don't really go to i don't go to movies hardly at all because i they really truly don't interest me anymore um i mean i still when i when i go on tv to roku or whatever you know and watch watch a film it's usually something from the past because or it's or it's a foreign film because i just like i like more more thought as opposed to uh explosions and uh you know a lot of the modern stuff and so and i'm not a fan of cgi at all because it just doesn't
0: naked gun is awesome i just gotta yeah those
1: are funny yeah those are funny. <laughs> those are my favorite yeah. but I,
0: I remember watching yeah. it and then it said oj simpson on the screen i go that can't be the same damn oj simpson is it and i found it out i was like oh my because i've never looked into his case or i just i never did it because i was like I, I just wish someone would ask him questions about naked gun because that's a whole side of history you got to get out of that man i know people whatever. But film history is a little bit more difficult because it goes into like – I had a couple – I've always talked about that on my show because I have an interest in it. But some guy was like, yeah, if you like The Big Lebowski, it's it's a horrible film. I'm like, what do you mean Big Lebowski is a horror film? It's my all-time favorite film. And they're like, it's making – they go, it's making fun of veterans from war because Walter Sochek having a freak out and he's an amplified version of a person with PTSD. I go, you're over-examining it, man. But I get it and it, it makes it more difficult. But I have this. We mentioned Nixon in the beginning. I got to ask you, what are your thoughts on Richard Nixon? Because I've, I don't know, when I see history like blacklist someone that bad, I kind of have to go, I have to look into this. And I think a lot of stuff, and I don't think he should have been president at all. But I look at like the overall targeting from like agencies and things of that sort that where everyone was kind of going at him. And I go, were you all like, he was going to be the sinking ship. And instead of you all going down, did you throw it at him? And I look at that. I think there's a bit of that. I don't necessarily think it's the whole picture. I think a lot of people wanted him out. But there is some stuff like even with Eisenhower making statements about the CIA and issues with that. I go, Nixon knew what that political thing was. It doesn't make sense why Alan Dulles went with John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, when you would say Alan Dulles would be a Republican. Um, He helped him win. Where I go, you looked at Kennedy as someone you could push over and show him how that's why kennedy went with alan dulles and later fired him over the bay of pigs but nixon knew that like what they were doing he knew what the climate was like in the offices he knew about the mindset of these people who ran these agencies j edgar hoover all these people because he had been there with eisenhower's administration like i said you can disagree with me that's fine i'm just looking through it from like people that either are patriots of nixon jeff Shepard, who defended him on watergate he's been on my show and kind of showed new documentation on that they did to kind of target i mean the the prosecutors against the Watergate thing were meeting with the judge and having lunches with the judge, which is perjury, but or just it's it's unethical. You can't do that. Yeah,
1: it's some kind of tampering or something. Yeah. So yeah. I
0: don't necessarily think like it was all rigged against him. I think he was going to go out, but I also think that these agencies kind of like pushed more up like just to really highlight him more, whether that was media as well, too, because it's never just one guy. There's always a whole bunch of other little tentacles and arms that go around as well, too. But like I said, I think Nixon would not have been a good president. I think he should have been taken out. I think there's a lot of issues with him 100 percent. But I also just bring in the idea of like, what are your thoughts on like, could there be a possibility that he was kind of. standbagged just so. The agencies could save themselves because right now I look at this whole thing as everything's protecting reputation, and these agencies have gone incredible lengths to basically protect themselves from any type of damage of credibility that's all that's the only way they view it
1: um Nixon is one of the more complicated political figures of. In the United States history, I think, but definitely since World War II, Um, you know, he was a he was a fervent anti-communist, anti-Soviet. But that's you know, but that wasn't that unusual during that time period. Um, He, do I do I think that they went after him? Yeah, and I you know, and I think now once we found out who Deep Throat was, and Deep Throat was basically Mark Felt who was an FBI agent who thought he was going to be the next guy in line for um, after J. Edgar Hoover finally left this dimension. Um, But he was passed over for, I think, J. Patrick Gray to be the director. And anyhow, and so part of Felt's... I mean, Felt was a guy who was involved in tons of black bag covert ops against the Weather Underground, New Left, and the Black Panthers. He was not a good guy. He was... He was a classic CIA, you know, for the lack of a better word, scumbag, you know, and um, and he 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 had no use for democracy. He had no use for, you know, fair politics or anything like that. But you know, he wanted to take down Nixon, and he represented an element in the U.S. government, you know. The deep state, if you, for the lack of a better word, for you know, basically the deep state is, is state. Like you were saying, these agencies wanted to protect themselves. They're they're all bureaucracies, and one thing's bureaucracies love to do. The, bureaucracies exist, and once if they start to feel that they no longer have a purpose, they create a reason for themselves to exist. I mean, that's what bureaucrats do. I worked in universities. I I you know I've seen that so much, and you can look at any giant. You know, the Pentagon is that way. Any giant organization. A lot of the people in the upper and middle level um, of, of of parts of the bureaucracy. They just create things so that they can continue to have a job. And I don't want to say that that was the only reason that Nixon went out because there was obviously... Multiple there reasons. Are politi- yeah, there are political and economic and institutional reasons why Nixon had to go. But, you know, he was, he, he was shrewd. He, and I don't know if he was... An intellectual, but he was intel- very shrewd and politically intelligent. That's why he was able to keep on coming back. He knew what alliances to make. He knew, you know, he, and he he knew how to choose his advisors to do what he wanted to do. Um, at the same time, I think he was a fascist. And I think what he was trying to create in the White House, um, especially after his first, you know, during his first term, but especially in his second term, was a fascist, a fascist government, uh, you know, and I mean, in that way, I mean, I wrote a piece a while ago talking about when Trump started to face fire midway through his own um, term there about the the, the the before the first impeachment um, was Nixon's impeachment and or threat of impeachment and uh, and Trump's. And, you know, there were similarities. Uh, Trump was also one of those people who represented a certain element of the US government that other elements did not want to assume power. I mean, I think Trump would have put in a fascist government too because I think that's his tendencies, you know. And the people behind him for sure, whether he was involved in all of it or not, we won't know for a long time. But but in terms of Watergate, I think Nixon was was the guy that they were going to go after, Nixon and his administration um because he was threatening powers that be that still found it useful to maintain a pretense or a facade of democracy uh, in the United States.
0: I just think he probably thought of it how I used to think of it, which was that the president, these agencies work for the president, and that's what he tried to do. Like, you guys need to do this to J. Edgar Hoover, and Hoover's like, we can't spread our FBI to do that, so he tried to create his own. And I go, that's, like, the thing to me that really kind of woke me up to, like – I'm like I said, I'm not defending Nixon. I don't defend Trump. I don't – honestly, I don't think anybody's fit to be president. It's just that's a really weird position to have one person do that. Um, but even, like, I'm very critical on Johnson from, like, belching in people's faces and doing that type of stuff and pissing on Secret Service members. It's, like, it's horrible shit. But then, like, you look at, like, what he was able to do where it was, like, blackmailing other congressmen to get certain things passed, and it was just, like – it's this is the this is the inner climate. This is how this shit. This is how it this works. This isn't like necessarily like we think the person that we're gonna put in is gonna be able to make so much change. And I go, I don't think that at all. I think that they, everyone knows how to basically get their heads above water and just keep themselves going in this administration. It's kind of like a show in a sense. And I know that's people like it's the illusion of democracy. I hate to say it like that, but. So – and when I say things like that, I go – when we talk about like Richard Nixon and we talk about like certain names that are politicized in history, I kind of just examine it from a different lens, which is like where can I look at the agencies and what they're doing because their whole job is also supposed to be protecting the president from having certain types of backlashes. And if I start diving into Hoover's history, if I start diving into Alan Dulles' history, I was like these guys have everything to gain from making sure that all the blame gets pushed on Nixon. We never even found out about MKUltra during Watergate. I think it was the church committee that we ended up finding out about like MK ultra and academic influence. Nixon didn't do that. That was the CIA. That was them. So I just go, that's who I really try and look at. Like I know, and I'm examining history from a different lens. Like I said, not defending. I know I got to justify that multiple different times, but. You know, I think people hear like usually now when I hear a story in history, I'm more suspect and I want to look into it just to be able to see if I can find anything from an intelligence standpoint. Because there's a lot of issues that went on in that time that we didn't find out about when everything was getting blamed on Nixon. So you really look at like, okay, who's not getting in trouble here? Okay, well, that's our agencies. Well, what did William Colby do? He exposed it. But where I agree with is that they had two people sitting beside William Colby telling him, you can't expose everything. Because we have people overseas. 100% I agree. Those people overseas will be put at risk. But what I don't agree with is why did they never publish the CIA's budget? I think I should. we should know how much the CIA is getting funded because now you talk about in the church committee organizations that are tied to the CIA that are under the guise of CIA, but they're just offshore accounts basically where they're putting their money into and they keep getting more funding every single year. That's an issue I have. And then William Colby um, goes kayaking in the middle of the night and dies, you know, that's a little suspicious. It's much like Dag Hammarskjold's death. And then also I'll put more weight into Hell Boggs's thing. I don't necessarily I don't side with these people on their political stuff, but what they stand for is looking at what these agencies and where the kind of the snake has run rampant through the garden. And that's like Hoover's power with the FBI. That's where these agencies have been going because they're directors. I mean, if you read Richard Helms's biography, the rough draft states through my time as CIA director, we I was a part of thousands of covert operations. You know what the final draft said? Dozens. The guy changed it to dozens. That's not like I mean, it might not impact people the way it should, but That's a big, very big difference. So like that's where I kind of like start examining things like I know everyone wants like the boogeyman or whoever the this individual is on the cross, but I'm like I think that's just been created to us because for a long time they told us in movies that the moonshiners and the bootleggers and the mafia were bad guys and I'm not saying they're good, but then I find out they're working to assassinate Castro I said, they're fucking lying to me. I was like, what is this? You guys told me that the FBI was the good guys and the mafia was the bad ones. And I find out you guys are working together. I don't trust anything now. So it's like, that's where is the perspective I have. And I know it's, it might get me in trouble or my people on different sides might disagree. That's fine. But I just try and examine it through like, whenever there's just one person or one individual, I go, there's always gotta be someone else that we just don't see or we don't get heard that it gets talked about.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I always like to say that um, presidents, when they come in to power, and they realize pretty much a lot of the stuff what you know what you're talking about, what you were just saying, um, they their desire is to they're not against those bureaucracies, those agencies and stuff like that. Um, however, they're against the way they're being run because they want them to work for them. You know what I mean? Like, Trump wasn't against the deep state. Trump wanted the deep state to be doing what he wanted them to do. Nixon wanted the same thing. Trump didn't take the time to create separate agencies. Nixon created separate agencies, you know, like the plumbers and out and outside units. And he even had a plan That's called the, was a, the Houston plan. Do you know about the, Tom Houston? Which he wanted to create an intelligence agency similar to the FBI, but would... But but that would include parts of the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, NSA, and one other agency. Um, I think the, the AFT. Um, no, AFT, I think, and and the BNDD, or what eventually became the DEA. Yeah, what do these damn it's, names mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they would all and they would all report directly to Nixon, you know, and and basically, J Edgar Hoover pulled out some pictures or pulled up something and said. That's not going to happen as long as I'm director of the FBI, because J. Edgar Hoover had something on every every human being, probably, you know, but definitely every politician. And, you know, if you we if we jump back to another president you were talking about, John F. Kennedy, when he came into power, you know, after he had that conflagration with the CIA over. um, of pigs and a few other things, he created the Defense Intelligence Agency. With the DIA, which still exists and basically. The point of that was to counter, was so that he would have a direct line to his own intelligence that wasn't coming through the CIA. So, so what you're saying is true, and how it all works out is is the hard part to figure out because there's a little bit of truth in those people who say, "Oh, the deep state, the deep state," or whatever you want to, whatever the current moniker for that phenomenon is, you know. And then there's a current. There's also there there's also some a kernel of truth to people who say, "Oh, they're you know." they don't run everything the president's in control or the congress is in control or something like that but there's so many it's all incestuous basically you know with you know so it's it's hard to, f- to to be able to say this is this and this is that i think is impossible because there's so many complicated and co- it's a complex web and when when you include what The industrial side of what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex that creates as a whole other thing where there are individuals who, you know, go who leave the military and go work for defense industries or leave the military and go work for Google or leave the military and go work for Oracle or Apple or whatever. And the same with people who work in intelligence agencies and so on. It's 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 difficult to to say what what begins where and, you know, because they're all working to make money for somebody um and there's no real way to there's no good side like you were saying they're all you know and sometimes they might be all against each other in one place and in favor of each other in another place like people are talking about you know how we have this war now the which i basically believe is a nato war against russia with ukraine as the battleground um Basically, then you have people, and and then I just saw this thing. I was recently visiting some friends in Florida, and they watch Fox News a lot, so they show Donald Trump a lot, and uh, they had Donald Trump sitting on there saying, "I would end the I would end the war in Ukraine within 24 hours of my inauguration." You know, I mean, it might take him a little bit longer than that, but at the same time, the point of it is that um, it's not that he's against war; he just wants to have a war in another. You know, what I mean, because he represents another element of the the power structure, and they've chosen a different power as their enemy. You know, so it's it, it's, it's it's a challenge.
0: It, yeah, it's <laughs> more complicated. I think when you look at like that's why I said like whenever I I got to talk to a lot of people with varying perspectives, and I appreciate them all. It's just it there's I don't think you're ever going to get answers to it. But one thing you can really point at is that there's a real other system that's at play that history does not talk about. And it's not the secrecy or the shadow side of the government. What it is, like, it's the serious military-industrial complex. It's this real, I think, pretty apparent thing when you really kind of examine history through just looking at, like, what else is going on and why is this motivated this direction? But, you know, that probably will never get taught. Maybe the deep state is a bad word for it, but I think it fits well because it's something that we don't see. But, you know, political assassinations, regime change, all that crap is – I would just recommend that to basic reading to anybody, but – I appreciate the work that you do. Cause I've seen some of your articles, like I said, on counterpunch and it's, you know, it's interesting. I I've just recently, I think over the past month came across that site and I was like, Oh, these are some interesting reads. I mean, that's important stuff that needs to be out there, but it's also like, man, the internet's so vast. There's a lot of stuff out there, but also shadow banning is real. And they trying to find this stuff is the most, one of the most difficult things. I mean, I know covert action magazine has been around for a very long time. Um, But they don't have like the type of thing that they they don't have the uh, popularity that they should have. And I think it's because it's by design, like there's things that are on there you shouldn't be talking about. And that's what I really hate is when people say, oh, you shouldn't talk about that. I was like, why are we saying that about something that is something we probably should be talking about? But societally, it's just rejected in a certain way because it's like, oh, people go, I don't want to touch that. And they walk away. I was like, well, if we don't talk about it, how are we ever going to get change on it?
1: You know you were saying something about there aren't any like clear answers, but what when, when when you look at like what you do, when you look at and you and you retrieve sources from across the political spectrum and beyond um the thing is if what I've noticed when i when I do that and so on is that I try to see how many because once I realize that they all have different answers probably or you know whether they're big differences in their answers or small ones and and you know if they're all how many of them are asking the same questions? And if a lot of them are asking the same questions, there's definitely something to that. And that's what makes me want to further investigate those questions. And it sounds like that's what, what what you do as well. You know, and just, you know, and I, you know, another person who's good at certain elements, you mentioned him earlier in the conversation was uh, Doug Valentine. And his stuff on the CIA and the, the, the FDA, Drug Enforcement Administration is pretty incredible. And he misses some of it because there's just too much out there. But he's really good his sources seem to be really good and like when he has completed you know competing statements from different sources he continues to go down the down to find out to find out more about whether both of these are valid statements or whether one of them is obviously just a uh you know some kind of fake news or whatever you want to call it you know
0: well, Ron, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. We've been talking a lot longer than an hour, but uh, I appreciate the time you gave me on this day. Is there a place where people can find your links if you want to promote any of your articles on Counterpunch, any of your Amazon links or anything where people can um, find your books?
1: My my books are available in all the main – in the mainstream, you know, like Amazon – Book, you know, books a million, any of those kind of stores. Or also if you go through the independent bookseller thing, uh, bookshop is one that hooks up with independent bookstores, bookshop.org. And they'll actually, you know, give the money to the right, to better, you know, to smaller organizations so they can stay alive in people's communities. Um, Counterpunch is the best place probably. Uh, just type in my name and you'll come up with, a, I've been writing for them for like over 20 years. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Plus there's a lot of other good writers on there. Um, as you've mentioned, you know, and some of them have been doing it for for as long as I have. Some of them are newer. I mean counterpunch is constantly looking for fresh you know new new writers and you know more diverse writers and so on so they can prevent a present you know they're definitely a left libertarian site, um, but uh they're not uh they don't tow a party line of any kind and they're not, you know they're they're left like way beyond. What we consider left the Democrats. I mean, they're they're way beyond that. So
0: I'll those are those. the best
1: places. Yeah, I'll,
0: I'll link those in the description so people will be able to click them. And I appreciate the time again, Ron. Um, it's been well. Oh, this is great.
1: It just, time just flew. This is a good conversation. Yeah, thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Ron, and thanks everybody for listening to this episode of, Out of the Blank Podcast.